This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Nordic Asia podcast. This is a collaboration between the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Petra Desatova and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen. It is my great pleasure today to introduce Lucrezia Canzutti, who is a lecturer in politics with a focus on migration at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom. Today we are going to be talking about the issue of precarious citizenship among the ethnic Vietnamese minority in Cambodia. Welcome to the podcast, Lucrezia. Thank you, Petra. So my first question is going to be, who are actually the ethnic Vietnamese in Cambodia? Are they a unified group or is there a lot of different subgroups? Um, there are a lot of different subgroups. So let me start by saying that um, the ethnic Vietnamese are the largest minority in Cambodia. Um, it's very difficult to find official uh, data on the size of the population, but international observers estimate there to be um, around 400,000 to 500,000 Vietnamese living in Cambodia. So we're talking about 5% uh, of the total population. And this number includes both newcomers, so people who have recently arrived in Cambodia, and long-term settlers, which can be further divided into two subgroups. So the, the families who moved to Cambodia before the Khmer Rouge, and those who arrived during the 1980s, so under the Vietnam-led People's Republic of, of Kampuchea. And my research focuses on long-term settlers. So these are all members of the, the Vietnamese diaspora who have spent all or most of their life in, in Cambodia. And, and what is interesting about them, the, the reason I, I started researching this group is, um, is that despite having spent such a long time in the country, they haven't been able to become Cambodian citizens. And they also aren't citizens of Vietnam. So they are de facto stateless and really live at the margins of the Cambodian state and, and society. So people who know about Vietnamese communities in Cambodia will know that they live mostly on Cambodia's watercourses, so rivers and lakes, uh, most noticeably the, the Tonle Sap waters, and many of them are fishermen. So of course there are also villages that are on land with people working in other sectors, but the majority are, are fishermen. And uh, what is also interesting about these Vietnamese is that uh, they have a very, almost a conflictual relationship with the Khmer majority. Um, again, People who are familiar with Cambodian politics will know that there is a very strong anti-Vietnamese sentiment in Cambodia, which gets regularly fueled up during the national elections. Um, so these are, this is a marginalized community, uh, but at the same time, the Vietnamese are also a very hot political issue in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. I've got two questions here. So my first question would be these long-term settlers, as you call them, are they second or maybe even third generation of Vietnamese who actually arrived in Cambodia? Or are these one of the first generation, but you know, now they are probably in their senior age, or is it a bit of both? So as, as I said, there are people who arrived in the 1980s, so they would be still the first generation mm -hmm. and maybe they had 
the head children in Cambodia as well. But then there are the people, um, the subgroup that arrived, uh, uh, that moved to Cambodia before the Khmer Rouge. And there we're talking about two, three or four generations, right? Because uh, I think Vietnamese started to arrive in Cambodia uh, from the 10th century. So some of them have really been in the country for a long period of time. And they were telling me about their parents, their grandparents, their great grandparents and where, where they were buried. I see. So the history actually goes very, very far back. So it's not something that's relatively recent, like a question of, let's say, last hundred years, but it goes back centuries and centuries. It goes back centuries. And then I would say, though, that the first mass influx of Vietnamese took place under the French protectorate. So that's when a significant number of Vietnamese started arriving in Cambodia. And this is actually a very interesting part of the story uh, because of, of the role of, uh, of the French protectorate in bringing these people in, but also fueling a, a certain anti-Vietnamese sentiment. That's where it kind of started. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that was going to be my second question, that you've already hinted on the fact that there is this strong anti-Vietnamese sentiment in Cambodia. You just said then that it was starting during the time of the French protectorate. But what is it really? Why is there so much, you know, anti-Vietnamese sentiment and why is it actually lasting up to this date? I think you know, a very good place to start when we talk about uh, um, anti-Vietnamese sentiments in Cambodia is this uh, this Cambodian saying that I'm, I'm often reminded of, which says, um, be careful not to spill your master's tea, which refers to, to what uh, Khmer people know as the Prayat Kumput Teong. Um, I'm fairly sure I mispronounced it, so I apologize to, to Khmer listeners. But anyway, this is a, a massacre that was perpetuated by the Vietnamese, um, I think, at the beginning of the 19th century, in which the Vietnamese allegedly buried the Khmer up to their necks and use their heads as a support for the, the boiling water of, the, of their superior's tea. And, you know, uh, yeah, I personally find this quite, um, quite difficult to visualize, uh, but I think it's interesting because it's a, it's a saying that's been around for a long time and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's rooted in history and it, uh, it um, reflects this idea of the dangerous, the belligerent Vietnamese that has become embedded in, in Khmer culture and everyday life. And this idea was there to an extent before the French arrived. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the French were the first ones that kind of exploited and fomented this anti-Vietnamese hatred. And, and they did it as part of their divide and rule strategy um, and to justify their intervention in Cambodia. So the French claimed that uh, Vietnam as well as Thailand, um, wanted to swallow Cambodia. So the, there are historical accounts of uh, the Thai tigers and, and Vietnamese crocodiles that, uh, that wanted to invade Cambodia. And therefore, Cambodia needed the French protection to survive. So the, the French really used and reinforced a negative perception of the Vietnamese that was already there to an extent. And what is interesting, as I said, though, is that at the same time, they brought a significant number of Vietnamese into Cambodia um, because uh, the, the French considered the Vietnamese to be um, industrious and dynamic. And they routinely chose them over Khmer people to fill the lower bureaucratic positions of the French protectorate. And this caused 
a lot of resentment and it's one thing that contributed to you know, crystallizing the anti-Vietnamese sentiment under the French protectorate. But something else that happened under the French is, uh, is an event, the, the annexation of part of Cambodia to what is now Vietnam in 1949. Mm -hmm. And this annexation concerned a large portion of the lower Mekong Delta that was inhabited by, by ethnic Khmer and is now known as the lost territory of Kampuchea Krom. And if you go to Cambodia and ask questions about the Vietnamese, I can almost guarantee you that the, the issue of Kampuchea Krom will come up. Because even though its, its annexation was, uh, was decided by the French, over time it became a symbol, it became proof of Vietnam's expansionist goal. Again, this idea that Vietnam wants to swallow Cambodia. So the issue of Kampuchea Krom continues to be invoked to fuel Cambodian people's suspicion of Vietnam and the Vietnamese. And it has become a very powerful political tool for opposition parties. So for instance, uh, if we're looking at uh, quite recent politics, we know that uh, Sam Ramsey, um, the leader of the recently dissolved CNRP has been relying quite heavily on an anti-Vietnamese discourse in, in his opposition to Hun San. And the reason for that, and the reason that, that this anti-Vietnamese discourse has been particularly instrumental to Sam Rainsy is due to Hun San's past role as a foreign minister of the PRK regime, um, which was established in 1979 when Vietnam's military and the Kampuchean United Front for National Salvation ousted the Khmer Rouge and established the People's Republic of Kampuchea. Now, according to Vietnam, this was a liberation, but according to many Cambodians, this was an occupation because the PRK stayed in power for 10 years. Um, so the fact that Hun Sen was part of that and then was put in power by the Vietnamese and then became prime minister in 1985 and stayed, uh, as we know, for the, for the past uh, 30 years, I mean, this relationship with Vietnam is one of the strongest political tools in the hands of the opposition, which is why it continues to be brought up during the election and periodically by the opposition. Right. So this is something that the opposition is actually using or trying to capitalize this popular hatred of the Vietnamese against Hun Sen and maybe to try to delegitimize his rule in a particular way. But how does this actually impact the lives of these ethnic Vietnamese in Cambodia? I mean, these very vitriolic debates are probably not going to be easy for, for these Vietnamese people to live with or, or to even come to terms with, especially if, as you said, you know, a lot of these, these Vietnamese would be second, third, fourth generation. And I, I, I would probably assume that then they are still considered as maybe second class citizens if they are considered as citizens at all. Well, right now, they, they aren't citizens. And I think that we, we can go back to that in a little bit. Um, but you, you're absolutely right. Many of the, of the people that I spoke with brought this up. They brought up the fact that they have spent most of their lives in Cambodia for the, the most recent ones that arrived in the 1980s. And the others uh, pointed out you know, that their family has been in Cambodia for generations. As I said, they were very keen to point to, to where the, their ancestors were buried or to tell me stories about the Khmer Rouge, how they also went through the Khmer Rouge. 
um, and despite this, uh, they're not, they're seen as uh, illegal immigrants. And one of the main accusations, again, something that comes up regularly during the, the elections, is that all the Vietnamese in Cambodia are illegal immigrants brought in by Hun Sen to, to vote for him. Um, so there is this prejudice and, and they, they definitely feel that. And many people also told me, you know, during the elections, I don't want to go out because, because I'm scared. And they also talked about this being in between, right? About this being in a home that they see as their home, but that doesn't see them as, as citizens. Um, something that uh, I found uh, particularly interesting when I was doing my fieldwork is that people talked about Cambodia and Vietnam as a Cambodian mother and Vietnamese father mm -hmm. and her as being the adopted children of Cambodia. And they were telling me as the adopted children, we can't expect to be treated like the natural children. That is a very, very interesting way of, of describing the uh, the state of existence, I guess, for this, this ethnic Vietnamese minority in, in Cambodia. As you said, they officially are not recognised as citizen and their relationship with the Cambodian state is quite precarious. But so far, we've only mentioned the stance of the opposition, right? But Hun Sen is in power in Cambodia. So is the, the relationship between these ethnic Vietnamese different to Hun Sen and Hun Sen's regime than it is to the opposition parties? Or is it the same? It's different, I think. So one, one thing that I should point out is that the, the accusation that these Vietnamese voted for Hun Sen, not the one that they were brought in, but that they were allowed to vote in, uh, in the elections despite not being citizens is to a certain extent true. So from what I could see, some people had voting cards and, and could vote in the elections. So but this is this... the recent elections, right? The... Yes, but also past elections. Okay. Um, but this became, uh, this started to attract attention from the opposition and the public. And in fact, I was in Cambodia for the last elections. And again, there was a very strong anti-Vietnamese sentiment and uh, people also joined together to, to create human barriers um, to stop the Vietnamese from voting. So this, um, this discourse, this uh, idea that the Vietnamese voted in the elections, although they weren't supposed to, um, became quite prominent. So I think that over the past couple of years, even though initially there was an instrumental side to the Vietnamese presence in Cambodia for Hun Sen and the CPP, um, the issue of voting became, became too big. Um, and now, um, at least when, when I did uh, my research a couple of years ago in 2016, people were telling me that they were not uh, allowed to, to vote anymore. So I think that you know, there was, um, there was an instrumental role for these people in the past, um, but this is no longer the case. Um, I think that right now the Vietnamese are seen more as an inconvenience from the Cambodian, the Cambodian government because there's such a big political issue. Um, and uh, when I was talking to, to some of the government advisors, they also pointed out uh, you know, that they also don't bring anything in terms of the economy. They are mostly fishermen. They don't bring money or skills. Um, they are um, what we could describe as Hun Sen's Achilles heel um, in, in terms of uh, like politically. So 
what a representative of the Cambodian government told me is that uh, the, the Cambodian government couldn't possibly grant citizenship to these Vietnamese because uh, they don't want to be accused of being uh, Vietnam's puppet. So they even told me that uh, the preference of the government would be to send these Vietnamese back to Vietnam, but Vietnam doesn't want them back. Um, so Cambodia, in a way, sees them as an inconvenience, allows them to stay, to live on their watercourses, um, but uh, it makes sure that they don't obtain citizenship and there's also a certain a significant level of control over Vietnamese communities so they're also able to make sure that they don't become problematic. Um, one of the villages that I visited had tried to um, start a petition because at the time of my visit all of the Vietnamese documents had been confiscated and substituted with new temporary documents. This is something that is quite standard. It's been happening several times, but it was done in a more systematic manner in 2016. So people tried to organize a petition and the organizer was arrested. So there is a significant level of control over these communities. I think um, we should probably mention maybe for those who are not very familiar with Cambodian politics that the most recent election happened in 2018 and basically there was no change in government so Hun Sen is still in power and that the election was considered pretty much a sham election as the opposition party has been dissolved before the election even happened. So there was no real opposition to Hun Sen going into the election and he continues in power. Absolutely. So that's very, very interesting in, in regards to this very precarious status. And I'm kind of wondering, because I have no expertise on, on Cambodia, or in fact, these Vietnamese minorities, but has Cambodia ever tried to, let's say, assimilate this Vietnamese ethnic minority and try to maybe offer citizenship in, in exchange for renouncing their Vietnamese-ness? The Vietnamese are seen as completely different in terms of culture uh, and even uh, incompatible with this idea of Khmerness. So I don't think there have been meaningful efforts to integrate them into the Cambodian society, even though the, the people that I spoke with, you know, pointed out we are Cambodian, we feel Cambodian, we're not different. We even have, uh, you know, mostly the same, the same religion because the majority are Buddhist. So they, they want to feel part of, of uh, Cambodia. But something else that, that you mentioned, something interesting, is whether the Cambodian state has tried to give them citizenship or assimilate them. Now, they haven't, as I said, tried to, to integrate or assimilate them, but at a certain point in history, the Vietnamese were granted citizenship. And this was uh, under the PRK regime. So when the PRK was established after the Khmer Rouge, um, the Vietnamese refugees who, who used to live in Cambodia were invited to return to Cambodia. But the regime also brought in new Vietnamese. And this is the 1980s flow that I was talking about earlier. So we had old and new Vietnamese moving to Cambodia. And these were granted ID cards. They were given Cambodian ID cards. And many of the people I spoke with still had this PRK ID card and showed it to me. This, of course, attracted criticism. And after the end of the PRK, 
these Cambodian ID cards were invalidated and uh, revoked and substituted with immigration documents. And ever since, so people started receiving these immigration documents that were also invalidated or substituted with new ones every couple of years. And this is also why I talk about precarious known citizens. They're not citizens now, but they have been citizens at a certain point in history. But you have this very precarious situation in which they are citizens, then they're no longer citizens, and they get this incredible number of documents that they showed me uh, that keep being being substituted you know that is a very fascinating story and just the idea of that once you've been granted citizenship you you're not guaranteed to stay citizen for life is quite baffling in in many ways because it's not something that we in the western context are very much used to it seems very arbitrary right so one day we're going to give you citizenship next day we're going to decide that we're going to revoke it so it, it makes it really precarious as you rightly pointed out and it makes it very strange i guess for, for these vietnamese people to to have that experience of ones actually being citizens and now not being citizens again so how can you maybe link it to some of some of these mainstream or more broader understandings of citizenships? I mean, is there any lesson that we can learn from this experience of, of Vietnamese in Cambodia? I think, as, as you point out, what, what we see um, in Cambodia doesn't really match our own experience in, in the liberal West. So when we talk about, uh, about citizenship, we often have a, a very... A specific idea in mind as involving civil, uh, political and social rights, so this Marshallian understanding of citizenship. And there's something that we're, we're born with, and it's, it's very difficult to lose, which doesn't mean that there aren't any problems linked to citizenship in the West. I mean, we've seen cases like the Windrush scandal um, and other instances in, in the UK or, or in Europe, but I think, you know, generally speaking, we wouldn't expect to be stripped of our citizenship uh, tomorrow. Again, as, as you said, what happens in Cambodia is quite arbitrary, and I think it reflects uh, uh, particular political circumstances and the interests of the, the political actors in, in power. So I think, yes, the, the idea of precariousness really captures the predicament of, of the Vietnamese in Cambodia but also of many other populations uh, um, across Southeast Asia and probably beyond Southeast Asia. Uh, and it's similar to that, well, not similar, it's uh, much more serious than the precariousness associated with uh, you know, job insecurity. Um, but I think that the, the term works well here in relation to citizenship and actually other scholars have also used uh, um, the, the notion of precariousness to talk about uh, stateless populations. Uh, um, not already being one of them. So the, the lesson here is there's something that we can learn where we can think that the experience of the Vietnamese can help us to rethink right how, how we, we understand citizenship, but also uh, concepts like citizenship which are rooted in the experience of, of the liberal West. Exactly. And then now I know that I will probably invite you for a lot of uh, speculation, but I'm going to ask nevertheless. Um, so do you think that 
there is any hope in future for these ethnic Vietnamese? I mean, is there any hope of citizenship for them sometime in the future? Are there any indication that the situation could change and change for better, arguably, not for worse? It's a difficult question. Um, I think there have been some changes recently. So a few years ago, there were new documents uh, being introduced. Again, these were temporary documents, but the Vietnamese were told that they should renew them every few years, every two years for three times, and then they would get citizenship. Now, this, this gave them some hope, but there's a catch, which is that they have to pay something like $60 every time they renew these um, documents, which is a very large amount of money, especially if, uh, if the, their families are, if, if they have large families and they have to renew the documents and get the documents for five to six people, which is often the case. Um, but there's also something else that, that makes me slightly skeptical which are the criteria for the the granting of citizenship at the end um, so there are still criteria about uh, not having broken the law in cambodia for instance not having been involved in illegal activities and because fishing rules and regulations in cambodia are so strict you know many vietnamese have somehow been um, involved <laughs> in breaking um, the law um, even if they didn't know it at the time, then there are criteria about uh, um, having embraced Khmer customs and uh, tradition. So I don't know whether this uh, recent development is, uh, is a positive one. I think that it certainly gives people hope. Uh, but as, uh, as history has taught us, I, I also think that a lot depends on domestic politics and how things play out uh, on the political uh, uh, scene. Exactly. I guess, unfortunately, it's always the case that it is often very convenient for politicians and for leaders to have groups that could act as scapegoats for a lot of domestic political problems. And yeah, and unfortunately, in, in many countries this is far too convenient way of dealing with minorities rather than trying to assimilate and create some sort of equality and and let's say cohabitation that is more favorable towards these minorities i think that uh, this will be it for today thank you very much for talking to us about this really fascinating topic it is incredible what's actually happening in the, in different different corners around the world and and there's so much more to be discovered and i really do hope that we will have a chance to talk more about these issues in the future so thank you very much for joining the podcast thank you for having me you have been listening to the nordic asia podcast co-presented by the nordic institute of asian studies in copenhagen and by the center for east asian studies at the university of turku in finland I'm Petra Desatova, a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I've been talking today to Lucrezia Kanzutti, who is a lecturer in politics at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.